Welcome to The Tippy Top, the podcast that helps entrepreneurs succeed by sharing best practice and creating alignment with investors. You'll hear from seasoned entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and industry professionals. The Tippy Top helps you learn vicariously because you simply don't have the time to learn every lesson through the School of Hard Knocks. Peter Walsh, great to have you on the show. Great to be here. My pleasure. Thanks again. Now, Peter and I met in uh, 2015, circa, uh, at one of his uh, impressive match capital events uh, at WeWork South Bank London. Definitely the best events in town. Anyone who was anyone was there. Literally, it felt like all of London VCs were there. Amazing. We love doing them. Um, you know, we got a lot of high-profile investors. Some of the high-profile guys didn't didn't necessarily come, but we always tried to make it very curated. Where you know, if it was you know retail tech or AI events, mm-hmm. we'd invite just those investors down. So it was always very well curated, and we did them at WeWork venues. Uh, we were at WeWork tenants. They were always incredibly uh, supportive. Set us. Comp- you know, set us up with a nice venue, um, sound systems, etc., screens, drop-down screens, everything, and most importantly, free beer. <laughs> and good snacks, too. That was me. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And, and I think that that was probably the key to their success, that it was targeted and, you know, going after investors with a rifle, not a shotgun. So a big lesson there already. What we tried to do was, like, we'd pick six companies, and well, before the event, we'd make sure that the investors who were coming down, you know, if they'd seen them before, then we basically said, what's the point, unless you mm-hmm. want to hear it all again. And for the companies, we'd say, this is who the audience is going to be. So if you pitch to all these guys, then make way for somebody else. So mm-hmm. the idea being that it was a completely fresh interaction between the six companies. They all had 10 minutes each. Obviously, you know, we wanted to make sure that it was condensed and it wasn't drag on all night. So the pitches would be for an hour. Everybody had 10 minutes. We didn't do a Q&A because we found that people would ask really stupid questions and just make the whole process really elongated. And then we'd break for drinks and food afterwards where if people wanted to carry on the conversation, then they could do. So it was really condensed, focused, and that's why I think it really worked. Yeah, excellent. And do, do you want to carry on? Uh, tell us a bit about your background, how you got to there and where you are now. Yes, yes, sure. So I, I came to London in, in the mid 80s when Big Bang happened. Most people probably won't remember Big Bang, but it was a, a, a very major deregulation of financial markets and exchanges in the UK. And um, so I worked for a trader for, as a trader for five years trading uh, interest rate products and foreign exchange. And then in uh, 91, I became a, a derivatives broker, equity derivatives broker for a company called ICAP, which um, was a five-year-old company at that time. So it was a bit of a startup itself in financial uh, financial services. Um, grew to be a, one of the top 100 companies in the UK um, at its peak. And I did derivatives for 20 years. Um, towards the end, I, I, you know, I kind of exhausted myself with that that product and wanted to do something brand new and something that was, you know, run by me completely. And 
sort of fell into the venture capital space where I thought there was a real disconnect between buyers and sellers, as I would describe them, or investors and entrepreneurs. Um, and that's how Match Capital came about from 2012 was for, you know, for the next seven years, I just did that. I basically tried to match buyers with sellers. And uh, we used, we had, we developed a, a platform um, which was powered by some technology that had been developed at the University College London. And, um, and, you know, it worked in the sense that we were trying to match uh, relevant investors to to relevant entrepreneurs and kind of take out the sort of A to Z, you know, kind of approaching people from an A to Z point of view would say, well, look, the top guy for you is this, and the second guy is this, and blah, blah, blah. And um, so to try and make it a bit more data-driven. Um, and so we did, I did that for seven years. Um, uh, we, we'll probably come to why well, it stopped, but basically I ran out of cash myself. You know, so you know, the age-old um, crime of, of startups, you know, not having a robust enough revenue model. Um, and then I, I, I worked for a charity for two years as their head of fundraising, ironically enough. Um, but during that period, we raised some record sums. The pandemic happened. It was an NHS-focused charity. And um, they were buying medical equipment for three hospitals through the pandemic. So it was a an incredible time to be part of us um, and it was great to see how people responded to us as a charity that you know there was the one time when people with real money kind of got the message that we need to do something and and that was a really uh, interesting time and then six months ago I, I left them to I came across a, a new startup in the bloodstock industry um, I'm not an expert on bloodstock by any any stretch of the imagination but I I loved what their ambition was, which was to bring the trade, the buying and selling of thoroughbred horses online. Mm. Um, and I thought, wow, that's that takes an awful lot of boxes for me. It's sort of a, an, you know, an age-old uh, industry being bringing a new alternative. And I thought, love to be part of it. And um, and so here I am. I couldn't think of anyone better on the show uh, as the listeners know this uh, podcast's all about helping entrepreneurs learn vicariously peter's you know done it from all ends of the spectrum for today we're going to focus on our usual three main topics today it's going to be time to fundraise reality versus fun fantasy number two founders always raise too little and number three why startups fail and how to avoid it but i want to come back just to Topic number one, time to fundraise, reality versus fantasy. Peter, what's your thoughts on that? Um, I, I, my, one of the first takes I have is that um, you, you're trying to get people to invest into a private company. You know, we're, we're all kind of used to giving money to money managers and investing into private companies and funds and all the rest. But here you get trying to persuade investors to put money into a private company where they may not get an exit for a very long time. So, you know, when, it, it, when you're absolutely at the beginning, you're going to go to friends and family. A lot of them will probably never have invested into a private company in their lives. So you're trying to persuade them to do something that they've never done before, even if they love you. Um, mm. And so that requires a hell of a lot of hand-holding, talking them through the process, explaining in the UK the whole tax structure of how you can benefit from um, tax breaks for, for your investment to minimize your risk. Um, and I'm reminded that um, 
that when we were when I was at Match Capital, we, we you know we raised a multi-million pound uh, raise for for a company. The top match on our system was the guy who put the money into them. But from, it took ten months wow. from the day I first met the uh, entrepreneur to the day he got the cash in the bank, and I thought that was a good outcome. Wow. So uh, you know you'll see a lot of things. Well, you know, go and raise money in three months. You know, six months. It, it, it takes an awful lot longer than, 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 than you think. So you kind of, I say, pick a number in your mind mm-hmm. in terms of time and then double it and then see how that affects your cash flow. Wow. And, and what, what would that number be initial as a rough starting point? Well, I mean, you know, we're raising money at the moment and I've been, you know, we've been talking to people since I got there and that, that was May, we're now October. Now we've raised a fair amount of cash but the conversations are ongoing with people. Sometimes, you know, they go on holiday or they've got other mm. um, focus themselves. So, you know, you're talking. I think you're talking in the early stages. You're certainly talking six to nine months, maybe a year. Take you three months just to build your database of people of mm. who you want to talk to. Then you got to go and see them, or you know, if, if you want to go and see them direct face to face or Zooms or. You know, it's just it's it, it's it's such a, a long process. You've got to make sure that you're allowing plenty of time to get, particularly in your first race, to get that money in. Um, it, it's 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 you know it's it's tortuous, tortuous. Wow. wow. And and sticking on that theme of time to fundraise, you've touched on match capital. Tell us a bit more. Well, w- one of the things that is is very noticeable now is that I, I you know, I look at I, I'm, I'm you know, very proactive on LinkedIn. I've always been a big fan of that platform because you know, both entrepreneurs and investors are all on there, either kind of in, in your personal capacity and in your pro- professional capacity. So it kind of captures your persona, which I, that's what I love about that platform. And I see I see companies that we worked with more than five years ago now beginning to mm. really make some waves and um i think back to when i first met them and you know i think it's companies that pitched at our first event in 2015 and and i remember companies that came along to just sit in the audience and listen six years on uh, they're beginning to make waves so it's you know it's it's uh, you know it, it took it's taken all that time for them to get to critical mass not three years, not two years, not what you know. It's not been an absolute rocket. It, they're mm-hmm. slow burners, and um, and and so once you're in this, you're in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's one company uh, that I, I remember we spent a total of a year trying to raise the money, put them in front of absolutely everybody, didn't raise them a single penny. They've just been bought for sixty-four million dollars this year, this this month. Wow. And I thought, well, was that us that was that bad at fundraising? Or was it just that, you know, people weren't kind of sure of the company and they thought that somebody bigger was going to eat their lunch? And there was all these excuses. Um, and yet the guy himself dug in. He wasn't taken defeat. He wasn't going to be put off. And somehow he made it through. But we looked for a whole year to get him, to get him money and never got him a dime. So, you know, there's a business that's gone down to be, you know, very successful in, in by comparison, okay, $64 million is a lot of money, but not a billion dollars. 
Um, but, you know, he found a way and he had to because there was no alternative. It, it, mm. wasn't, it wasn't through raising money. They found a way to just grow organically, as it, as it turns out. And how have you taken those experiences that match capital to help you, you know, be as successful as you have been, obviously, early days with Thoroughbid? I, I think that my learnings are that um, you need to be constantly having the conversation with because you, you never know. I, I, somebody told me a, a great phrase, you know, when you're looking for, you know, when you're, look, when you're looking for, when you're looking for money, ask for advice. So when you speak to people, you find that you're always kind of pitching. <laughs> and and it, you, I, I sometimes find I catch myself thinking, oh, my God, you're just pitching rather than just saying, hey, you know, this is what we're doing. And we're trying to, you know, do this and do that. And you kind of feel like you're just kind of pitching all the time. And um, so but you do need to be having those conversations with anyone because you'll find that your friends or acquaintance say oh hey listen you should meet so and so and mm. i'll introduce you to my great friend he's a you know in in, in our case you know, he's a great you know he's a trainer or he's an owner he's a bloodstock guy you know and um if you're not kind of telling people you kind of have to just swallow your pride and just tell everybody who listen what you're doing um and and gradually what will happen is that you're 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 having the conversations as you're gaining traction you need to run the two in, in tandem um, because, you, and I think this is where a lot of companies get into trouble is that they sort of try and build a business and then they go and try and raise money. And then they spend all their time raising money and making their eye off the business and vice versa. Um, so in a team, you need to have somebody who's kind of, that's their job, go and raise the money, go and talk to investors. So I guess that's been, one of my kind of principal roles has been making sure that, you know, we've between the team, we've amalgamated all the people that we know who might be interested. And we've made sure we've put ourselves on all of their radar. Um, it's over a hundred people in our case. And because, you know, it's going to be a small percentage of them that will ultimately put the money in. Um, and then, you know, even if you get the money, I think you still need to keep talking to people because you may need to go back for a bit more at some point. Um, and you just want to make sure that people know about you and know about the progress. And even if you're not raising, you're telling people what your progress journey looks like. Okay. So you're, you're doing your own PR marketing, essentially. Mm. Sage advice. And, and I, I particularly like what you said about having one dedicated fundraiser. Someone focuses on the business and, and someone does the fundraise. And of course, there's crossover, but you can only yeah. generally focus on one thing at a time. Now, Next topic, founders always raise too little. Tell us more. Well, I, I, again, it's, it comes back to everything is kind of different to what you expect. So you, you might make conservative expectations in terms of revenue and you make, make, make conservative estimations in terms of cost. And I think then what you need to do is sort of work out like what's the doomsday scenario, i.e. you think, you know, here's my revenue trajectory, and I think my cost is going to be this. So we should be okay if we if we follow this path. Mm -hmm. But imagine if if the revenue turned out to be half of what you had anticipated, and your costs were double. What does that look like? Because you'll find then suddenly you need to raise a hell of a lot more than you thought. So 
again, you have a number in your head that you think you need to raise. It's almost certainly going to be double that. Mm. So, but the point is, you, I think you sit down, you work out with your team, you go through a spreadsheet, you go through, you literally pick each line apart about how much you need to raise, how much you're going to make out of this, what's the cost going to be, how many people do you need, what's your marketing budget going to be like, et cetera, et cetera. Get a sort of a sensible um, sheet together of your forecast over three or five years. And then, we're, and then kind of say, why? What's, what's, what's Armageddon look like? Mm-hmm. And how you know can we survive Armageddon? Mm-hmm. What it'll ultimately mean is that you you will need to raise a lot more money than you initially thought on your conservative projection. But you need to have that number in mind so that you know what is the worst case scenario. Um, and I think the trouble is you're not no you're you're always thinking of the positive that's because you're selling positivity. Mm-hmm. You have to, that's your job. You can't be going oh well you know the worst case scenario because people will go well. That doesn't sound great. Um, so, you, you know, you're trying to sell uh, the positivity, but in reality, you need to have a, a, I guess, a doomsday scenario in your, at least in your mind process. So, you know, which is part of the reason why I say you've got to keep going with the chat, even if you do raise the money that you think you need initially, keep it going just in case you hit um, a bit of a, you know, if you hit a hurdle at some point. I, I use the pun loose because now all, all I ever talk about is in horse terminology. But, um, you know, like the pandemic came along. I'm sure that that must have hold an awful lot of startups below the waterline. And I have a great friend who has a fantastic business in the music business. And, you know, he had putting on major stars and at uh, race grants. And, you know, for 18 months, they had no money. Mm. But I knew he'd get through it because he just had that kind of resilience and he just, Re, you know, re, re, uh, recalculated what survival looks like, and he's come out the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, again, you, it, you need to raise more than you think, and it'll take longer than you think, and you need to be, you need to work out in your mind what do those worst case scenarios look like to see can you get through them if that's what ultimately turns out to be reality. Mm-hmm. And and barring big global pandemics, what are the reasons why people aren't getting the number right? Are they, you know, underestimating costs, thinking revenue is going to be too forthcoming? Yeah. Is it deal costs? What's the main thing? I don't think it's the deal cost so much. I think it's just, the, you know, you, you just, reality turns out to be much tougher than what you thought. Um, and so therefore it's obviously sensible to make sensible projections, but once you've kind of come up with your, what your sensible projections are, work Mm -hmm. out what, what the worst case could be and, and sort of be kind of, uh, you know, subliminally working to that worst case scenario so that you don't get enough surprise yourself in three to six months time. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's like, you know, imagine your, your revenues are half of what you thought they were going to be. Imagine your costs double of what you thought they were going to be. What number do you need to get? And, and I, I think we, before we started talking, when I looked at the figures from HMRC, so in the UK, we've got the great, you know, we've got the seed enterprise investment scheme, we've got the enterprise investment scheme. Fantastic. And they're probably world-beating initiatives in terms of helping investors mitigate their risk. And if you look at 2019 to 2020, the average raise if an SEIS company, when the limit is 150, the average raise was 80 grand. 
So, you know, even though you think, oh, well, I'll go and raise 150 under SEIS. Well, mm -hmm. the average in the most recent four-year figures was 80,000. Um, and then if you look at EIS, um, if you get that far, mm -hmm. the average raise is like 440, 450 wow. for 2019, 2020. So, you know, if you go in your you think, well, we'll raise 150 grand under SEIS, and then we'll go and raise a million under EIS. Well, that's not the reality. The numbers are indisputable. They're coming straight from the people who, who um, send you your certificates for your shareholders. So I would say, well, then if I put 80 grand into my forecast and I put 450 grand into my forecast for my EIS raise, when I look at that on my trajectory, then what does my cash flow look like? Mm. Because that's re in reality, unless I'm an outlier, I'm, that's what I'm going to raise out of it. Mm. Um, if you get to the venture stage, you know the average venture raise is you know about two million quid, mm. which might take you might take you five years to get there, three or four years maybe. Mm. Um, uh, and you'll need to be doing significant revenue to be able to get the VCs to give you two million quid. I mean, they'll want to see, you know million pound or million dollar annualized run race for you to attract that type of money in my experience. Yeah, they'll need to mm -hmm. see the growth. If, mm -hmm. And they call it venture, but it's not. It's growth capital. Also. Mm -hmm. Because they have to answer to their, you know, they have investors giving them money to find the unicorns of the future. So they are definitely very forensic about the companies that they invest in. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's quite scary because we're saying, it takes longer. It costs more. You know, you need to raise maybe, you know, it could be double what you estimate. Yet people are raising, you know, just over half of the SEIS limit. So the cash is not there at that early stage. So are we looking at a bit of a market failure in the UK? Is it better in the US? Do you know? Uh, like I saw something, somebody posted on LinkedIn the other day, you know, pre-seed, I think, valuation, $8 million. I was thinking, well, like, I mean, that just doesn't happen, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, and pre-seed, you know, what is pre-seed? Well, over there, it's kind of maybe even before you've got proof of concept. Mm. Um, so, but the trouble is you can't be looking at the U.S. because it's not, you know, this has been going on for a long time. Silicon Valley and the U.S. is a much bigger universe and is much more aggressive um, and, you know, we're dealing with the reality in the UK. And even with world-beating tax incentives, your average company is only able to raise half of what the threshold is. Mm -hmm. And that's pre-pandemic numbers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, has it got easier? Has it got harder? Arguably, for 12 months, it's got harder. And maybe now we're, you know, we'll see a bounce back. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, if you look at the, you know, the SEI scheme's only been around since 2012. And actually, there's only, only 2,000 companies that actually raised money under SEIS in the 2019-2020 financial year. Well, 2,000 companies? There's hundreds of thousands of companies out there being set up every, you know, every year. What are the rest of them all doing? Mm. Are they bootstrapping? Or are they just you know, having a go and then it fails quickly and they move on? Um, so it's a very small percentage of the, of the number of companies that are being created mm. that are actually successfully raising. So, you know, we called it the sort of, you know, when I was at Match, we were like, 
you know, there was that, we called it the chasm, you know, the funding chasm. Mm -hmm. um, how do you get past the funding chasm? And nothing's changed since I stopped, mm. as, as far as I can see it. It's still as hard. Um, and what I, you know, I, I like to look at the, the actual factual numbers coming from HMRC and from the British Venture Capital Association as a very good guide of what re the reality is like. Mm. And I can, you know, if somebody needs the actual reports on this, you know, they want to get it from me, I can, I can send them you know, send them some links maybe later on how you find it so you can see what I'm talking about. Yeah, great. No, I'm, I'm glad you, you're setting the record straight because everyone thinks it's fundraising city and, you know, the taps are open and it's super easy and the reality is anything but. And particularly, you know, I think this US-UK phenomenon where everyone's taking advice from the US saying, well, they're raising... 10 million at a 80 million post money on their pre-seed round. That's not the UK. Um, and also in the, in the US, the cost base is entirely different. When you hear about starting engineer salaries, they are eye-watering. So does it actually go much further? Probably, you know, might maybe goes less far. So um, yeah, people, you know, if it's that much easier in the US, I always say, go to the US. You know, if you're in the UK, you've yeah. got to pay by the UK rules. Which are much more conservative. I, me I remember there was a, somebody talking about, you know, in um, in the US, if you got a good idea, they give you hard cash. In the UK, if you got a good idea, they give you a hard stare. And I, I've always liked that phrase because I think that that is what it's like. Um, yeah. Hence, you've got to be super positive and super punchy and mm. super committed in, as a UK entrepreneur. Mm. Um, but that's the game, right? Yeah. Coming on to our third topic, why startups fail and how to avoid it. And we've had some clues coming up to this point, but I'd love to get your insider thoughts on that. I, well, I, I think it's really just, you know, I think the question is sort of a summary of everything we've talked about. Um, how to avoid it, it, it's hard to say how to avoid this i think that i think what i've tried to allude to is that um you need to work out you know as i say look at the look at you know, kind of have a, a sort of three stage approach to your funding one is what if it's like if it's super super amazing or average or worst case scenario if it's super if it's super um successful well then you never need to raise any money so it's kind of a moot point. You know, if your trajectory says, hey, listen, we're going to make millions of pounds in year two, well, then investors say, well, what do you need the money for? Mm -hmm. You know, normally you need the money to fund your funding. You're borrowing money. You're getting money invested to fund losses. So you've got to be able to explain how those losses are going to disappear mm -hmm. so that in year three, four, five, and beyond, you're a profitable company. Um, and losses mount up very quickly. So again, I, I, you know, I think you have to take, you know, project the super positive story, but in your mind have worked out what, what the worst case scenario looks like so that you, you don't, once you've raised the money that you think you need, keep talking to people, you know, maybe just keep taking slivers of cash just to keep the, the thing taken over just in case you hit a bump mm. um, because you suddenly find when the cash starts running out, it starts running out very fast, um, and you, you know you therefore need to be on top of that the whole time. It, again, it comes back to somebody in the team being the 
the guy who's out there selling the story, mm. selling the business to investors, talking to potential customers, getting leads, etc. Whereas when somebody else is in the mm. business, driving sales, um, and and on a large case, it'll be large number of cases, there'll be somebody who's the techie. You know, let him concentrate on the, on the building the tech. Mm-hmm. One guy builds revenues. One guy keeps the funding going until such time as you get to cash flow positive and you can, and then you can kind of regroup and, uh, you know, all muck in together or, you know, divide your roles differently where you're actually managing people and customers and all that kind of stuff. And the funding is not so much of a problem anymore. Mm-hmm. No, no, sage words. And, from your bird's eye view perspective from Match Capital, the, the businesses that did succeed, what did they do right? I would say that, the, generally speaking, the guys who really impressed me were the guys who were out there all the time. I, you know, I can think, I, I'm, I'm deliberately avoiding names because I just think, it's, you know, I, I haven't checked with them before, but there were some guys who were literally out there, they would turn up. I, I say they would turn up to the opening of an envelope. Mm-hmm. You know, they were at every demo day. They were at every, you know, kind of meetup. They were at every uh, pitching event. Just there, you know, they were kind of either they were either presenting or they were just hanging out. Um, they basically committed their lives effectively to the business, and and you know. Yes, they become slightly, you know, thinking, thinking, oh, God, here he is again, saying, you know, I've seen this guy a million times. But they were just relentless. Mm. And I think you have to have that relentless streak. Um, yeah, and, and people who are not going to take no for an answer. Mm. And that, I think on a personal level, that causes problems because, you know, if you're in a relationship or you've got young family, you know, you need to be out all the time. And that must put an awful lot of strain on family life, particularly if you're a young family. Um, and you know, there's only so much support that your your partner is going to say. Well, you know, I'm behind you 100%, and you go for it, and we'll be here. And you know, eventually, after six months or nine months, you're going. Well, you know, you know, the baby needs. You know, the school fees are coming up, and you know, you're still paying yourself a pittance. So, it, I, I think that those guys, you know, the guys who were just literally relentless. Mm. with the guys who, who, who impressed me. Um, and I think that's the quality it requires. Wow, okay. Tall order, as you say, and, and, and you need the support of your family and friends. Um, so check with them before you decide to build a startup, right? 100%, 100%, because it's a lonely place, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're the one who's, you know, as an entrepreneur, you fret all the time. You're constantly waking up in the middle of the night thinking, oh God, I forgot mm-hmm. to do this or I must do this tomorrow or, you know. Um, and, and, you know, you, you sort of, you can't, and you can't unburden. It's hard to unburden yourself on people because people don't like to hear bad news. They want to hear the good stuff. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, you're, you'll be constantly sort of storing up problems and bad news and there's nowhere to there's no release valve um and that's that's that becomes that you know that can become an issue you know you can basically end up in a bit of a burnout situation or your your mental health is struggling because you um you know sorry i i, I think it's you know it's public knowledge that you know if you look at the guy who set up monzo eventually 
you know, I think he stopped being the CEO because he was struggling with with his own mental health. And I can imagine that trying to grow a startup like that at the breakneck speed they were going must have been, you know, in, in, on one hand, fun, but like you can imagine more and more people reporting to you, more and more people that you're responsible for, all of that kind of pressure. Um, I can see how that would take a toll. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that a lot of entrepreneurs face is this kind of cash out looming, you know, the, the heading towards a brick wall and not helped by many VCs who aren't distressed investors, you know, by definition. So they'll, you know, you've got, it's a very fine balance. If an entrepreneur's in that scenario, what would you recommend they do? Say three months to cash out. Are there any levers they can pull or is it preordained 12 months ago and there's not too much to do now? I think you'll find it's very difficult to avoid the, the, the you know, to avoid disaster because if you're three months left, you're, that's, you know, you need, you need a bit of a miracle. Um, you're not going to be able to borrow money. Mm. You know, there's no bank on the planet will lend you money for your startup or to help you through the tight cash uh, situation. Um, so unless you have assets, you can, um, that you can, leverage mm. and what are you going to do you're going to say to your wife oh listen i'm just going to go and uh, or your partner you know I'm, I'm going to go and mortgage the house just to get us through the next three months i mean good luck with that conversation so um i, I think when you get to that point it, you know there's a there is a point at which you just got you you, you will have to raise the, the white flag um, mm. and Hence why I come back to you almost need to be doomsday scenarioing from day one so that you don't end up in that, in, in the sort of the, you know, in, in the sort of, you know, rush towards the brick wall, as you say. Mm. Yeah, no, scary stuff. Because it's very painful, you know, it's very painful, very hard to admit defeat. Um, but, you know, you'll keep going till the literally there isn't anything left mm. because that's just the nature of being an entrepreneur. Absolutely. And, and, you know, sometimes they do turn around and you have to hold out for that bit of hope. And, and just coming back to all the experience you've had, you know, very enviable uh, track record and experiences to date that you've fed into Thoroughbid. And it's definitely, you know, I can see it firsthand uh, leading to your success. I was just wondering in terms of those statistics, in terms of startup failure, in you know, in your view, if everyone knew what you knew now or know now, what percentage difference do you think that would make to failure rates? And and where I'm getting to is in terms of entrepreneur education, is there enough out there? You know, do we need more podcasts and blogs and vlogs? Or are entrepreneurs listening? Are the schools giving the right training? I think there's lots of there's lots of podcasts about people who've made success. Not very many ones about people who have gone horribly wrong and what's mm. what, what was the obvious thing that they missed because that's really i think there's where you the lesson you know it's like when you're when you're when you're building a product and you're getting loads of really good feedback every time that we got a a bad a, a user of match capital who had a bad experience that was the one mm. that 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 bothered me you know not the good ones when they say yeah you're great you know god so good that you're around really helped us to do that it was when the guy said well i didn't, I didn't meet anybody here about Mm. they're rubbish or you know actually you know that investor you in, introduced me to uh was really rude or uh, you know mm. 
it was the bad experiences that you were trying to mitigate more than the good ones. Um, so, you know, I, I think there'd be more education about the failures rather than the success. I like that. And yeah, and, and learning from other people's failures, <laughs> not doing it yourself, because there's thousands, tens of thousands of people who have done it before you, you know, pick up a book, listen to an audio podcast, the information's out there. You don't need to make those same mistakes to learn the lesson and you can do it better yeah. and pick up where they left off. Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, we're talking about raising money. You know, ideally, you don't want to go and raise money. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to be going to try and raise money. You want to have an idea that almost hits the ground running mm. or you know how you're going to finance it, um, uh, you know, without going to invest because that's such an involved process. Um, and so, you know, it, ideally, you want to see, you know, is there any way I can make it without having to go to investors? Mm. Obviously, that's you know not always easy, an easy thing to do, and, and the vast majority of companies will still need to raise some money from somewhere. But um, I, I think you learn more from listening to people's disasters than you do from listening to their successes. In my own personal opinion, maybe I'm just negatively, negatively unconscious bias to the negative. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever works. Great. So I think I just want to summarize the, the main topics for today. So time to fundraise reality versus fantasy that it takes six, nine, 12 months. And as Peter says, you might have to double those figures. So scary stuff. Uh, founders always raise too little. Uh, so what should you do? Raise double um, and actually raising is quite hard. So go get money from your customers instead. And number three, why startups fail and how to avoid it well you know be relentless and plan ahead and have that balance between the optimism and the realism and that downside scenario because it, it does happen so thanks for that peter really uh, insightful i mean I'll, I'll qualify everything i've said you know that, that obviously i've had my own experience of it you know mm. had, you know worked for some very successful companies had my own failure, you know, I'm now in a company which I think is going to be a, you know, a huge success. Um, so, I, you know, everybody's experience is going to be different. Um, mm. And, and I, you know, I'm really just kind of talking to you from the benefit of my own experience. And I'm, you know, late 50s, but still, still on the, on the, you know, on the entrepreneurial journey, loving it. Um, but it's a different life to being working in, in you know, mm. working for the man, as they say, mm. um, because it's, there's, that, there's always that uncertainty in the back of your mind about, you know, is it going to work? <laughs> you know, when you're in a big company, it's almost self-fulfilling to some extent. Yeah. Um, but when you're in these kind of young companies, you're just not quite sure what the, what, you know, where, what, you know, when people say to you, where do you want to be in five years? Well, if you're in a, big corporation you can't think well i'd like to be you know senior partner or you know managing director or on the board or whatever when you start up you're like where does that be in five years well I'd still i'd like to still be here um <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be a good start yeah but that's the, the good thing about entrepreneurialism is it's 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 and being in entrepreneur and being working in startups is it's a great you get a great satisfaction every mm. little victory feels like you've won a major battle, you know, all the little things that all the little successes are, they, they almost feel much bigger than they are mm. because uh, it's just a great feeling when things 
things come off. Mm. No, I'm sure. No, incredibly insightful and, and such valuable advice. Thanks again, Peter. Um, do you want to tell the listeners where they can find you online and then we'll go into some quick fire Q&A and then we'll conclude? Yeah, I mean, well, our website is thoroughbids. So we're playing on the word thoroughbred, thoroughbids.co.uk. Um, so go there and have a look at what we're doing. And, and uh, my email is peter at thoroughbids.co.uk. If anybody wants to drop me a mail, ever, I'm, I'm always keen to, you know, happy to talk to people about my own experience and, and hopefully help them avoid uh, disasters themselves. That's very kind of you. Thanks, Peter. So quick fire questions, your formula for success. Uh, total focus. Um, don't get dragged down every rabbit hole. Because people will say, "Oh, you should try that." You should mm-hmm. just, you know, have a have a, you know, know what you know the direction you're going in, um, and believe in yourself, because that's that's the, the for me that's the key thing. You've got to believe. You, you know, have total self belief mm. if you can. No wise words. Advice to your younger self. I wish I hadn't partied as much when I was at university. Why not? Well, univer- I sort of kind of saw university as a reward. <laughs> I've been done all right at school. Whereas, in fact, what I should have been doing is say, right, this is the next stage to the, uh, you know, to the career path. Um, so, but I was in a, I'd been at boarding school, so I thought that, you know, I wasn't getting into university. I was like, that's your reward. Go and have fun for three years. <laughs> so I should have just kind of got a, I should have struck some balance. <laughs> I think you're doing all right. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe. maybe. <laughs> don't be so hard on yourself, maybe. Uh, the next big thing. Obviously, Thoroughbid is the next big thing. Uh, and, and apart from Thoroughbid, the, the metaverse, that seems to be the word, the watchword. I don't know what it means, but, uh, you know, metaverse seems to be the thing that's uh, on, on people's lips that, that these days. So I'm going to keep an eye on that. Yeah, I know we've just seen the, the rebranding of our friends at Facebook, which is yeah, very uncanny timing. And <laughs> Funny that, yeah, funny that. <laughs> Given you've, you've been on both sides of the equation, uh, best advice to VCs? I think for VCs, if they can find the time, I mm-hmm. think that when you get a, if you're in a VC or an investor and you get a deck and you can give the, the, the feedback, if you could give us, I know that, you know, the VCs receive hundreds of decks and, but I know some guys who would spend, you know, they'd stay up into the night writing emails back about why they didn't buy into a thing. They were tend to be the young kind of VCs, but mm. I think, you know, as an, as, a, as an entrepreneur, if you're, if you, the feedback is the best thing. If somebody says your deck's rubbish and here are the reasons, here are the five reasons I didn't like it. That's, you know, you take it on board and you, you then reshape the thing. Mm. Um, if you're just getting no answers, it's just you don't know, you know, you just don't know where you're going wrong. Because mm. ultimately they're not coming back to you and it must be for a reason. So it'd be good to know what those reasons are if that's, that's at all possible. I know it's not, you know, they don't necessarily have the time, but that, I think that would be really helpful. Mm. Well, as you say, it's, if, if the VCs provide it, it's free advice, very helpful. And coming back to your earlier point, if you, if you want advice, ask for money and you'll probably get lots of advice that is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Best advice for entrepreneurs? 
a few kind of very tried things fail to prepare prepare to fail mm. um, i think you need to i think more often than not i think we need to now kind of go a bit old school i think mm. speaking to people on the phone and not relying on email to do the talking for you mm. i think is becoming important people are bombarded by emails so you're you know you're kind of pitch is going to get lost and might end up in spam you know uh, if you can talk to people if you can get intros where you can have a call with somebody and talk to them about what you're doing and engage people you know when i was in the broking industry it was your voice that helped you succeed talking to people talking to customers having the, you know a bit of banter or back and forth chat um you know get out there you know go and you know just be visible Mm-hmm. Um, and talk to people because people. As, 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 that's for, one thing's for absolutely sure is people buy people, mm-hmm. and I think that's always been the the watchword in the in the in the venture industry. And I, I and that's one hundred percent true. Is you know, and if you're not able to project your personality and your passion and your verve and your drive and your determination, then it's going to be very hard for you to to convince people to give you money. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, and. On that note, when people send through pitch decks, I always say, send a five-minute video clip along. You know, if you can't pick up the phone and it's going cold, do the video. The passion comes across and, you you know, maybe you're not good at translating words and ideas into a deck. It, it's not, you know, it's not that easy. So yeah, bring in that human touch and you'll probably get a lot yeah. more uses. I think that final, be more, more, that more of that would be good, yeah. Sure, more video. I think video is a great way to start. I just, mm. just not used enough, I don't think. Mm. Well, you've seen only recently LinkedIn come up with the video on your profile pic. You know, he has a 30 second intro to me far, you know, far better than people reading, you know, um, it just yeah. doesn't translate as well. Absolutely. And, and finally, your favorite way to blow off steam. Cycling up steep hills, um, painful bus something satisfying about getting to the top. So I live in an area where there are a lot of hills, man. So I, I like going and getting up there. Road and then looking bike. down on the view, looking mm. down on the view. A road or mountain bike? Uh, I've got a, a road bike. I don't, I'm not mad with the hybrids off-road. Off I, I, I like roads um, and I like, I like hills. Uh, while I still can, I think is, is the way I've got about it well i saw i saw harrison ford still cycling around so i pictured him in the paper at age 78 and i thought okay well i've still got 20 years to go to get to his, his age so um you know i'll take him as my as my uh, as my role model there you go great well it's been a pleasure peter uh fabulous advice great insights and uh thanks for for sharing that with all the listeners and um we look forward to having you back again soon yeah my pleasure Pleasure. That's all for this episode. Keep tuning in for more exclusive content on how to succeed as an entrepreneur. Make sure that you follow the Tippy Top on all social channels, including Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, or now Meta, Insta, YouTube, with at the Tippy Top blog. And check out my website, thetippytop.com. And you can also find me, Alexander Lee, on LinkedIn. Until next time, keep pushing, and I'll see you at the Tippy Top. Cheers.